Well, of course we took a picture of your vagina when you weren't looking. You wanted to be a singer. You know, if we really look at that line of logic, it does not add up. I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. Sadie Doyle's work has appeared in The Guardian, Slate, BuzzFeed, and The Atlantic. Her debut book, Trainwreck, The Women We Love to Hate, Mock and Fear and Why, is quite fascinating. In our interview, she talks about Britney Spears, Amy Winehouse, Hillary Clinton, Marilyn Monroe, and even Mary Wollstonecraft. And later on, Just the Right Book heads to the Big Apple to get the scoop on what everybody is reading in New York City. Sadie, welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a fascinating book, and I do really think, wow, what biases are baked into all of us even those who think we're not walking around with a bias. So tell us what a train wreck is. I think the quickest definition would be that a train wreck is a woman who is publicly shamed, who sees her suffering become a form of entertainment because she is sexually overabundant, emotionally overabundant, or preferably both. <laughs> to to really make it all go viral. Yeah, that's it, you know, it helps if you have multiple angles from which you can, you know, abhor a woman. That so, really helps. So give us a good contemporary version of this person. I think um one really contemporary vision that everyone might recognize is Britney Spears mm. in the late 2000s. Uh you could also look to someone like Amy Winehouse or Whitney Houston, women who were obviously in trouble, who obviously had pretty severe health problems. In fact, two of them died from those health problems, but who were treated more like jokes than like medical crises unfolding in front of us. And do you think, you know, one of the things I thought about when I was, there were a couple of things I thought about, and and let's focus on those uh, in particular. You know, Amy Winehouse, when you see the documentary that was done on her, which was heartbreaking, the other thing that made me so sad, aside from what you talked about, is the people, the her hangers-on, the people who needed her the machine to keep going. So let's start with the people close in that are contributing factors. Do you do you see that as an element of how this happens or just sort of another another piece that exacerbates the sadness? I definitely think that yes, there's an apparatus. These women's suffering is is a commodity and an industry. So you will see people sometimes in their actual lives um who are unwilling to let them, I don't know, leave the spotlight even when they know that that's not being used for good purposes. That said, I think there's a lot of hand-wringing about like, oh, the parents, oh, the, you know, the boyfriends, the hangers-on, why is no one helping these poor women? Really casting them as children, as lacking in agency. Mm. Um, Whereas I think the real people to blame for the commodification or their suffering is us, the people who buy it. Yeah. So what is it that makes us so um, attracted to all of this? You, you know, that are, are we looking to validate ourselves? Are we doing this out of fear? Are we doing this out of meanness? What's driving 
we'll we'll consider men and women a collective for a moment, and then we'll break them down. But what is it that's driving this kind of insatiable voyeurism to watch these train wrecks? Well, we do live in a sexist society. Um, we are taught that women's sexuality is always inappropriate and that it should only be used to gratify someone else in, um, in a virtuous heteronormative marriage situation. We are taught that women's emotions are always unwelcome, that women should not care about how they feel. They should care about how others feel and keep it together and help them. What this means is that when someone seems to embody a sexist stereotype, we, of course, blow them up and supersize them and share that image all around. Not so much because of who they are. I mean, often the stories we tell about these quote-unquote train wrecks are pretty widely divorced from their actual lives, but because having something that looks like proof of the stereotypes is a good way to keep that sexism going. And, and does this happen to men? Um, I don't really think it does. I mean, I think this is a question that comes up a lot. But um, I think there are men that people dislike or hate. Uh, but those people are, you know, they typically have to do a lot more than a woman would have to do in their situation. Yeah. You know, someone like Johnny Depp has to be accused of spousal abuse, and he still may not face serious repercussions. Mel Gibson has to be violently racist, uh, violent <laughs> towards his partner. Right. Um, you know, somebody like that, somebody who's a, a real danger to others, either for reasons of bigotry or for reasons of violence, we can have, we can arrange a backlash on them. But there's a pretty clear second act for them as well. I mean, Charlie Sheen was known to be violent towards women for a long, long time while he was on the most popular sitcom in America. Yeah. And, and here's the other thing that occurred to me as I was reading uh, your book, and I thought about it with Britney Spears, and I thought about it with Hillary Clinton. And the the observation I have is that we like our women dead, controlled, or out of power. Yes. And w- when you think about Hillary Clinton, her highest likability was when she was a victim, when Bill Clinton was his most egregiously disrespectful of her or when she was out of office or we we feel better about Brittany now because she has no control. You know, she's under total control. Of, yeah. I forget who her guardian is, but she can't it's, make any uh, decisions. Her father and a lawyer whose last name is Wallet, which is really unfortunate. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so do you think that's true? Do you think then we feel better than women are sort of put back in their place and we can like them again? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Hillary is a great case study for this because, as you said, people love her when she's lost something or when she's been victimized or humiliated in some way. Mm. She had huge approval ratings coming out of the Lewinsky scandal because she was the humiliated loyal wife. She ran for office and they went right back down again. Um, She had abysmal approval ratings when she ran for president, but the second she lost back in 2008, boom, it went right back up again until she was one of the most beloved politicians in America, which then lasted right up until she ran for president again. Hillary's great because we are so willing to accept her when she's down, but she refuses to stay down, and she really tests our our ability to, to handle a woman who is powerful or triumphant. 
which it seems that a lot of us respond pretty badly to, actually. You know, the other woman that you talk about that I have become fascinated by after I read a biography of her by Barbara Leeming is Marilyn Monroe. Mm, Because Marilyn Monroe was both a seductress and a seductee. And as I... You know, she was very, very clever about her career, but that didn't take away from the fact that she really struggled with demons and there were people periodically who used that to their advantage. You know, um, one would say Arthur Miller being a good example of that, where she orchestrated saving him from, you know, the McCarthy error, and then him using her in a way to to shore his own career up, and yet she was just collateral damage. Yeah. No, Marilyn is great. I wish I had gotten deeper into her because there is, there's so much there, and she's fascinating to us precisely because of that dichotomy that she was, you know, much, much smarter than anyone ever gave her credit for. And also, you know, she had some some pretty profound pain in her life. She struggled. And sometimes her struggle was really evident. And, you know, it just shocked me going into this to realize the extent to which that struggle was seen as shameful right up until she died. You know, I'd heard about um, Billy Wilder sort of talking trash on working with her, which he did. Um, He said he was the only director to make two pictures with her, and he deserved a Purple Heart for it. (laughs) But I wasn't aware that, you know, women's magazines like the Ladies Home Journal actually killed a profile of her for being too sympathetic. Um, Really? Or that, you know, there were, you know, that Arthur Miller wrote a play in which she was portrayed so in a very ugly way, like essentially just as a messy lunatic drunk. Um, so I wasn't aware because she had always been presented to me as universally beloved that she too had been sort of a train wreck in her time. Oh yeah, I think of her as the first train wreck. So here's a here's sort of a counterpoint to what we're talking about. Some could say that some of the contemporary women that are making themselves YouTube sensations or become part of the 24-hour news cycle and their interest is in fame, just just fame for the purpose of fame, are looking for trouble, you know, that they are live by the sword, die by the sword. How do you respond to that comment? Right. I think that that's ultimately victim blaming because men have always had the privilege to go out in the world and make something of themselves. And they don't have to be frightened, you know, of having themselves ripped apart in the same way that women have to be frightened of that. I think that, you know, if you just say, well, of course we took a picture of your vagina when you weren't looking, you wanted to be a singer. You know, like Mm -hmm. if we really look at that line of logic, it does not add up. That has nothing to do with her choice to be an entertainer. That's purely about us policing her body. Right. So, you know, we can say that these girls are quote unquote asking for it. Um, but uh, again, every time you say a woman's asking for it, I would question your logic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the choice to do violence is always in the hands of people who do the violence. And I think people forget that. I'm glad, I'm glad you responded to it that way because that is the easy place where people go. So you're not entitled to want to be famous because you're a woman. Right. You know, that's, that's almost where it's going. So 
Speaking of the 24-hour news cycle, that might make us think that train wrecks are a modern phenomenon. But in fact, you go back to the 18th and 19th century. Tell us who were the women under scrutiny then. Oh, yeah. This was the fun part of the book, was going back and trying to find um, historical antecedents. And what I found was that uh, someone like Mary Wollstonecraft was really just ripped apart brutally uh, for her own sex life and for her own mental health struggles. So tell us Um, her book. Tell us the name of her book. uh, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women. And um, it's I always I always um, skip right past that part. But it's a basic, very rational Enlightenment feminist treatise, it basically argues that women will not be fully human until women receive full education. And that, you know, you should just let ladies learn and nothing will go wrong. They won't become sexual deviants. And hundreds of years later, this is still a core curriculum text used in women's studies across the country, probably around the world. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I think it is... um, You could argue that it's the first book of feminist theory written in the West. Mm -hmm. There are some things that go back even earlier, but this is the first big statement that we have. And it's still, it's still read today. The funny thing is that I expected people had pretty much ignored her at the time. I thought she was probably a neglected genius. She really wasn't. She was quite famous. Uh, John and Abigail Adams read her work. Aaron Burr read her work. A lot of the intellectuals of the time respected her deeply. You know, I mean, they had to be on the left left wing of things, but she was she was both famous and well respected for these theories until it was discovered that, in addition to the theories she'd put forth in the book, she had been sexually radical. She'd not believed in marriage. She'd had two relationships before marriage, and in one of them, she had a child. And even worse, after she'd had that child, when The father, Gilbert Imlay, abandoned her. She went through a really severe, really dark time in her life and tried to kill herself. When this was discovered, and it was unfortunately publicized by her husband, William Godwin, who seems to have had no idea that people would react badly to it. Like, you really can't understand what's going through this guy's head. Yeah, I wondered about that. When I was reading about him releasing information that otherwise hadn't been public and supposedly uh, with the objective of of showing how beloved she deserved to be or how much he loved her, and yet it created the firestorm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that he, his vision was really warped by grief. He had only been married to her for about six months when she died. Mm-hmm. Um, it was warped by how close he was to her. His own politics, you know, sort of prized radical honesty. Rousseau was a big touch point at that time. The problem is that he wasn't being radically honest about himself. Yeah. He was being radically honest about his wife when she couldn't stop him. And it really, oh, it was the ugliest backlash I've seen. Um, you know, it was it was ridiculous. Um, right-wing newspapers published poems calling her a whore and a maniac and a usurping bitch. Uh, they said that she had given herself to half the town. Um, feminist, feminist women were so caught up in this that, you know, even they could not align themselves with her. Some of the last remaining feminists, you know, would simply say, no, no, she was crazy, and we don't want anyone like that associated with feminism. 
Um, Do you think women are worse to women than men are? I wouldn't say worse. I don't think it's a difference of degree. I think it's a difference of kind. Um, You know, men may be dismissive or cruel or violent towards women. And that's, um, you know, that they live in a culture that has encouraged them to look down on women and not take women seriously and maybe not empathize with women. Women themselves, when they're, when we are cruel to each other, I almost think it's like a survival strategy. Mm. We're under a ton of pressure to perform our femininity correctly, to make men accept us, to prove that we're worthwhile human beings. And one of the easiest ways to prove that you are better um, than other women is to find other women who aren't doing so well and shame them. Yeah. You know, I, I think that we're doing that. When we do that, we're saying more about ourselves than we are about the women in question. I, you know, um, it makes me think about in the 80s uh, and the 70s, I was in the financial world then, and it was a early time that women were in in that world. And what men would often say to women that were succeeding is, oh, you're more like a man than a woman, meaning that mm. as a compliment. And your temptation would be to go with that instead of saying, no, this is what women really are like, because you might want to then separate yourself from the women that they see as inferior. And you might get into the club if you if you go along with them and say, yep, I am more like a man than I am like a woman. Yeah. I still see young women talking about that today. Really? The you're not like other girls compliment. And that very quickly becomes, you know, saying I'm not like other girls or, oh, I just don't get along with other women. I just prefer guys. You know, I'm, I'm, I find it pretty easy to, to be friends with guys myself, but, you know, that I don't think that that redeems or excuses me from being female. Yeah, exactly. I had a crazy thought, uh, Sadie, and I don't know. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter mm. was Mary Shelley. Uh, Mary Shelley, at the age of 17, wrote the book Frankenstein. All of a sudden, it dawned on me. So the monster was created to fulfill some dark desire of Dr. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, and this I might be really being uh, con- contriving to make the statement, all of a sudden I thought, so Mary Shelley didn't really know her mother. Her mother died when she was an infant. But it made me think about this idea that a monster existed, this, this idea of her mother being subsumed by the monster of what the press was about. It made me wonder what Mary Shelley knew about what yeah. happened to her mom. Did you come across anything about that? Um, I think this is fascinating. I had hoped to um, to write more about this in the book that I eventually, eventually did, and I'd love to go into. I'm fascinated by both of Wollstonecraft's daughters. There's Mary, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who... Um, is the one who wrote the book, and there's Fanny, the illegitimate daughter that she had, who the was one with you know, the uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, both of those. I think Frankenstein is a book that is obsessed with illegitimate births, with mm-hmm. shameful births, with wrong births. You know, Fanny Imlay herself, um, her being illegitimate weighed so heavily on her that she um, she considered herself lonely, a creature without a, a country. She didn't. She had no. Um, 
great looks. She had smallpox when she was very small, so her face was heavily scarred, and that weighed heavily on her. I always see a ton of Fanny in this book because she actually committed suicide because of all these feelings while Mary Shelley was writing it. Mm. So Mary Shelley went out and sort of repeated all of her mother's quote-unquote mistakes, you know, running away with a handsome poet and having a lot of sex and having a baby outside of marriage. And, you know, she lived out the rebellious side of her mother's legacy. And Fanny, who had been the daughter um, who was alive when Mary Wollstonecraft made her suicide attempt, carried out the side of Wollstonecraft's legacy that was about loneliness and sadness and, you know, deep depression. So I definitely think that Frankenstein is about both of those daughters. I think you can find Mary Wollstonecraft and Frankenstein everywhere you look, provided you're willing to look closely. Yeah. So how do we fix this? I mean, this feels really sad and destructive and certainly not productive. So what is it that any of us can do to begin to think about how to mitigate the possibility of creating more train wrecks? Well, I'm a big proponent of the theory that if you see your patterns, you're in a better place to change them. This book spends a lot of time tracing out the shape of the archetype, the pattern, the narrative trajectory of what a train wreck is and what she does. And that's so that the next time we see one, we might be able to step aside. We might be able to um, notice ourselves participating in a mass shaming and say, wait, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, A lot of this book is concerned with how virulently we police women for being public. And now that we are all public, because we are, we're much more encouraged and much more capable than we used to be of having social media profiles and blogs and otherwise leaving our mark on the world. It behooves us to think about whether we want to use our newfound public voices to drive other women out of the circle, to drive other women into silence, or whether we want to use them to broaden the range of narratives we have, Mm. to present the world with our own weirdness, our own flaws, so that we don't have just one idea of a good woman and one idea of a bad woman. You know, I love, if 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 I might quote uh, from your book, at the end. I thought that this was just a wonderful summing up. You say, with all that we can do to each other these days, it still seems like this is the choice at hand. We can drown in it, the judgment and hatred we have for each other. We can tank women's lives, hold them under until they shut up or stop breathing, or we can let it wash away. And I think that, you know, you give an example in the book before of just being able to submerge yourself and not not allow any of these statements to impact how you think of yourself. You go on to say, I don't know how you feel. I don't know what you're writing onto the women in your life. I don't know what's been written on you. But this is what I hope for you, that when they take you to the water, you come out clean again, that nothing they write on you can define you. I hope we all wind up back on dry land, clean and new as morning. And I love that. I love that. It's inspiring to, to, to think that. So your book has been called Fiercely Brilliant. A mm-hmm. must-read um, critique on the subject, and uh, I, I think it's an important book for all of us to read because it does reset our thinking, and I do think uh, we all do need our thinking reset to understand what we're inadvertently or advertently uh, doing to each other. 
Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad I could help at least a little. Yeah. Well, it's a start, right? It's a start. Yeah. <laughs> so slightly pivoting, uh, I always like to ask our authors a couple of questions. What's the book that changed your life? There have been a, about a thousand of them. Michelle T's <laughs> Valencia really grabbed me when I was in college for just the rawness and honesty of her voice. And she sort of pointed to a wilder, freer way of being female and feminist. Um, I think I found Sylvia Plath's Ariel in the library when I was volunteering in the library. I must have been, you know, maybe still in middle school. Wow. But that one really rocks so intense, and I didn't know that girls were allowed to say things like that. You were precocious to be reading that in, in middle school. Oh, I think I think that's the best age to read Sylvia Plath. I, I mean, agree. obviously, as you read her as an adult, there's going to be more and more, but... Just the bloody intensity of it is very fitting when you're 12 or 13. And speaks to you, speaks to you at that age, I think. Oh, yeah. And what are you reading now? What's on your nightstand? What am I reading now? Well, speaking of Michelle T., uh, I just uh, got her new sort of novel memoir hybrid um, called Black Wave, and that's pretty beautiful. Um, Other than that... I'm I'm reading um, Andy Zeisler's We Were Feminist one, and I think that everybody should just read it. She is brilliant at sort of unpacking the idea of consumer feminism and how feminism gets used as a branding mechanism. And and what are you working on next? Uh, what I'm working on next, I think this book is just so fresh out that there's no way to know what the next step is. I'm still waiting to see if this if this book works. So I, you know, I'll let you know. But in the meantime, there's no big plan. Well, I hope it is the beginning of a conversation that begins to lead to change. And I really want to thank you for talking with us. We've been talking with Sadie Doyle, the author of Trainwreck, The Women We Love to Hate, Mock and Fear, and Why. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. Our producer, a New York native, just like me, went out to the streets of New York to get the scoop on what everybody's reading. So what is currently on your nightstand? Harry Potter and the uh, Chamber of Secrets. And have you read all of them? No, no, I'm reading them now because I've seen all the movies, and she actually, my girlfriend introduced me to the books, and uh, everyone was saying the books were a lot better, and I was like, no way, no way, no way, because I'm, I'm a movie person. I started reading the books, and now it's like I'm in love with them. And tell me your name? Andrew. Andrew, and what is your name? Brooke. Brooke, and what is currently on your night? <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> is, it, is it the same? Yeah, name? it's the same Harry Potter. Are you reading them together? No, we're not reading it together. <laughs> we talk about it, and his best friend is really into him, too, and he actually just went down to Universal to um, see what, what it was like down there in Harry Potter world, so it's pretty cool. It's cool. So it's pretty cool. It's cool what she did, like, with the book. She turned it into, like, a whole, like, movement. Like, everyone likes Harry Potter. And then they started, they did the Orlando thing, and it made a theme park out of it. It's like this woman just wrote a book, and then turned it into a whole series, and then it grew and grew and grew, and now it's, like, a cultural thing. It's really cool. Yeah. My name is Adriana, and I'm currently reading Everything, Everything by Nicole Yoon, and I actually just found out that the movie is coming out in May, and I'm so excited. Excellent. And what types of books do you usually read? I usually read romantic books. Yeah, they're my favorite. <laughs> so what are you currently reading? Um, I am currently reading Before I Fall by Lauren Oliver, and I also found out that it was being turned into a movie, and I'm excited about that. So what is currently on your nightstand? Um, Jane Austen's Emma. And I actually like the book because the main character, Emma, 
she throws herself into everyone else's lives trying to fix it and then without even realizing it she's becoming herself and finding who she is and it's kind of funny how if you immerse yourself into the lives of others you kind of forget to realize or think about your own situations and then you grow with it and you find yourself out kind of nice I like that so you kind of relate to Emma in a certain way a little bit yeah kind of like helping friends out doing stuff like that for a complete list of all the books in today's episode, including Sadie Doyle's Trainwreck, just go to bookpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Just the Right Book on iTunes. We want to hear from you, so please email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. And thanks to our audio engineer, Pat Keogh, and our producer, Christina Torres. Thank you all for listening.